0: You are listening to DermCast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs. Um, You know, we're getting toward the end, and so I'm going to keep this sort of uh, hopefully um, low pressure, um, low stress. Um, There's going to be a lot of pictures, okay? Um, But we're going to talk about um, some interesting things. And at the end, at the very end, if I have time, I have some really exotic things from in sort of the returning traveler uh, realm, so hopefully we'll get to the end. Okay, so let's just start, let's just break it up in categories, bacterial, fungal, mycobacterial, and so on. So we'll start with bacterial. And I'm going to talk uh, first about a topic that maybe isn't like the coolest topic, but it's a very important one. And this is actually an area where derm can make a huge difference. So cellulitis is a common condition. Rather, I should say the diagnosis of cellulitis is a common condition. Charitably, about 30% of cases of cellulitis are actually not cellulitis. Probably it's more than that. Um, But when a patient gets this diagnosis of cellulitis, very often it's something else, some other mimicker uh, that we can uh, sort of redirect. So uh, the literature says about 30% of these diagnoses are incorrect, and 90% of those, 30%, um, can stop antibiotics, can leave the hospital if they're in the hospital, uh, and so on. So this is an opportunity for dermatology uh, to make a difference. What are some of those mimickers? Of course, stasis dermatitis, contact, lipodermatosclerosis, lymphedema, erythema nodosum, and I've got some examples here of those entities. So here we have stasis dermatitis and stasis ulceration. It's bilateral, so bilateral cellulitis, not a thing, right? Um, uh, Stasis dermatitis, bilateral. You have uh, hyperpigmentation, hemosiderosis, scale, itching, erosions, same thing here bilateral, scaly, erythematous, itchy, there's edema. Um, When we do unknown sessions with our residents at Penn, we have something called the wood floor sign. Uh, Only our oncology units have wood floors, so they know right off the bat this patient uh, is neutropenic and thrombocytopenic because she's getting chemotherapy. Um, And she has stasis, she's bled into it um, because she's thrombocytopenic, so it's very impressive purpura. Uh, But this is uh, stasis dermatitis, not any infectious process. Here we have lipodermatosclerosis, that inverted champagne bottle, kind of fibrotic, you know, feels like the lectern here. Um, and it can look um, like cellulitis because it has these acute inflammatory periods where it's very erythematous and warm. Um, but don't be fooled, again, the bilaterality is helpful, this shape is helpful, the edema is a clue. Well, how about this patient? Um, This was a patient I saw in the ER. They were really trying hard to admit him to the hospital for his, quote, chronic cellulitis. Uh, So he had had this cellulitis for nine months, um, and it was itchy. And you can see here, if you're looking closely, this sort of um, spongiotic kind of changes here in the epidermis, this uh, sort of surface change. And what do you think he's been doing? He's been using wet wipes. So he's allergic to that. Or how about this patient? Uh, This is another patient I met in the ER. Um, And, of course, this is a toilet seat dermatitis, and her mom is uh, dutifully cleaning the toilet seats with Lysol, like, you know, between every use, essentially. And so she has a toilet seat dermatitis. You know, sometimes this is hard to differentiate from infection because, you know, there it is right around uh, a post-surgical wound. But, again, the clues are that there's this surface change, there's, like, little, like, micro vesicles, almost. There's scale, it's very itchy, and it's geometric. It corresponds right to where this patient has been applying triple antibiotic. This is one of my favorite cases uh, on this, uh, in this realm. Uh, this was a patient I met as a resident, and um, the consult was uh, actually for They had consulted surgery for debridement. This is the patient's arm. They wanted to debride this. And then surgery said, well, it looks fungal. Let's call derm. And so I went in, and I asked her, you know, about three questions to figure out what was going on. And she had had um, a lesion removed here, and then she was putting on triple antibiotic. And as she put it on, about two weeks in, she developed this rash. And what do you think she did? She just kept putting more and more and more and more, and it just worked its way out into this huge, you know, area, this oval geometric area. And, you know, this is what chronic contact dermatitis is going to look like. Um, We see other mimickers, so eosinophilic cellulitis. So this patient, um, you know, uh, we've had patients who come in repeatedly for quote-unquote cellulitis, sort of migrating around. And if you get up close, you can see um, that there are individual uh, bug bites here, and it's sort of this uh, terrific um, kind of wheel and flare response with Welles syndrome. Um, Erythema nodosum, another mimicker of cellulitis. I kind of joke around that if there's pin marking, that means it's not cellulitis. Somebody else has helpfully drawn that in to tell you that it's not cellulitis. Um, Here's uh, erythema nodosum on the other leg. It looks a little bit more like what you normally would think of, uh, but it can be quite um, extensive and impressive. More erythema nodosum. Okay, so finally we get to real cellulitis. So what makes this cellulitis? Well, unfortunately, it's a clinical diagnosis, right? So it's cellulitis essentially because I say that it is, right? That's the hard part. Um, Well, why did I say that it is? Well, it's helpful here to see that there's actually streaking. Now here the streaking is discontinuous, But the important thing: this is the draining lymph node bed over here, and so there's erythema up here, Um, there's uh, uh, warmth, there's um, tenderness. Um, The patient may or may not have a fever and a white count, um, and other factors going on. Um, Here is more cellulitis. So here we have a portal of entry um, in the umbilicus, you know, an area of uh, where he's been scratching, and you have this not only erythema but this kind of slightly indurated feel. And there's it's hard to um, translate it to the screen here, but you can see this kind of orange type of look um, as well. Now this patient, of course, has altered anatomy because of the post-surgical changes, um, and that's part of the problem here is that the lymph drainage is altered, and so she's predisposed to cellulitis, and this is actually her second or third episode, um, and uh, you know it's very extensive here, um, but again, um, she has a predisposing factor. This is a patient with erysipelas, so um, just basically one sort of slightly more superficial than cellulitis, so it has this very um, well demarcated border. And here, again, her portal of entry is the ear, so she gets some some subderm, she scratches, and this is her third or fourth episode of erysipelas originating from that site. This is contact dermatitis, uh, not cellulitis. Um, And so what are the key points here? Well, we want to correctly diagnose it, and we want to treat the correct underlying organism. So what is that organism? Um, Well, strep um, accounts for 75 to 90 percent. And this is based on not only culture data, but also um, advanced ways of of, um, analyzing um, presence of organisms, because it's really hard to culture cellulitis. Um, But strep by far is the most common, followed by staph. Um, and then uh, less commonly um, uh, gram-negative rods. So here's a, just a brief differential. So strep, again, 75 to 90% of these cases of cellulitis. Um, and we're gonna be able to treat almost all cases with um, anti-strep, anti-methicillin-susceptible staph antibiotics like essentially Keflex. Um, Keflex is um, sufficient for 96% of cellulitis. Um, and uh, compared against Keflex plus Bactrim, um, there there was no uh, difference. Um, So when should we think about something like MRSA? Well, if you have a patient who has um, purulent cellulitis, um, so this was a a woman who was being treated for cellulitis and uh, we were actually consulted for something else entirely and we came and saw her and we noticed that she had this kind of fluctuant area right here Um, which we incised and drained and got a bunch of pus out of. Um, If there's ever something that looks like you can drain it, it's always a good idea to drain. Um, That's part of the treatment. It also helps uh, guide your management. So we drained this and it grew MRSA. Um, So a study of 420 patients with purulent soft tissue infection, MRSA was the dominant organism. Okay, so the point here is like, you see cellulitis, it's strep, 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 but if there's purulence, if there's an abscess connected to it, then you definitely wanna think about MRSA. Um, Rarely we see other things uh, causing cellulitis, Uh, so this happens to be E. coli, and my experience with gram-negative cellulitis is that it often has this deeper red appearance, and then frequently you can get these hemorrhagic bullae, and these are actually a helpful clue diagnostically, but also you can clean one of these off and culture the bulla fluid, and often you can grow the organism. Um, This is enterobacter cellulitis, so here, you know, why does he have enterobacter cellulitis? Well, he's immunosuppressed, and he also has an ulcer next to his stoma, so this is just set up for uh, gram-negative flora. Okay, so we're going to identify and treat the correct organism, and we're going to address underlying factors. So this is another way that dermatology can be helpful, um, because a good chunk of these patients have a risk factor that's going to make them have cellulitis again. Um, So edema, venous insufficiency, um, tinea, eczema, we want to treat these things. Um, so for this lady with the erysipelas, we want to treat her subderm, so she doesn't, she's not scratching all the time and, and inoculating bacteria. Um, or for this patient who's now being hospitalized for like the third time with cellulitis, we know that anatomy is not going to change, unfortunately. Those lymphatics are, every time you have a cell, episode of cellulitis, it scars the cutaneous lymphatics, you're at increased risk of a second episode. Um, so consider this. This was a New England Journal article that looked at prophylaxis uh, for cellulitis. So 250 milligrams of penicillin twice daily. Um, the number needed to treat to prevent one episode of cellulitis was five. Um, if you read studies where they report number needed to treat, it's like never five. Like that is like the best you can imagine in terms of like efficacy. Um, so I, I do avail myself of this, um, you know, fairly often if I have a patient who's got recurring episodes. All right, so let's move on from cellulitis, and I'm going to go kind of rapid fire through some pictures and show you, um, you know, different cases. So here's uh, impetigo, of course, that honey-colored crust. Um, this uh, uh, little one also has impetigo, um, but there's something a little bit special about this one. You see that there's a blister here. Um, so this is bullous impetigo, and so the staph is um, creating this um, staph exfoliative toxin. Um, and here that process is happening locally where the staph infection in this location is eluding the toxin leading to the bulla formation um, versus this condition, staph scalded skin syndrome, um, where the um, staph infection is eluding the toxin throughout the body, and you're having a more generalized uh, superficial peeling. Now, of course, this is more common in kids. It likes the body fold areas, and you often get this kind of cracked, uh, scale appearance. Um, when it happens in adults, it can be quite a bit more dramatic. Um, here the mortality can reach 60%. So part of that reason is because uh, part, part, of the, part of the reason for that is because these patients often have end-stage renal disease or they're otherwise immunosuppressed and so um, they, then you introduce this infection on top of things and it's a problem. So of course we're going to use anti-staph antibiotics. Um, we often also introduce clindamycin um, because um, it can shut down toxin production. Here is staph ecthyma. so I think of ecthyma, staph and strep ecthyma as being impetigo just one layer down, uh, so you have this kind of superficial ulceration from staph. Um, staph furuncles and abscesses and if you have a patient like this you know again we're thinking not just about treating this episode but we're treating about thinking about preventing the next one so this is a guy who's clearly colonized with staph he's got this all over the place and so we're going to treat him with anti-staphylococcal antibiotics uh, but we're also going to think about staph decolonization procedures so there are a million of those described typically what we do is chlorhexidine wash from the neck down daily for a week and mupirocin ointment under the nails and the nares um, uh, twice daily for a week, um, you know, plus minus an oral antibiotic like doxycycline, um, and we're endeavoring to um, clear him of staff so that this doesn't keep happening. All right, so staph aureus therapy. Okay, so for MSSA, you know, first-generation cephalosporin like Keflex we talked about or Um, we always wanna drain something that we can drain. We wanna culture whenever we can. That really guides management, and then we're gonna to wanna to soak and remove any crusts um, to speed resolution. For MRSA, um, you know community-acquired MRSA, Clinda, Bactrim, Doxycycline are options, um, Vanco, Linase Lidapto as well. Um, and then we want to add clindamycin if we're concerned about toxin production, such as um, the patient with staph scalded skin. And we want to address that staph carriage state if we can. Okay, so sometimes the question comes up, you know, is that HS or is that um you know for staff for uncles? Um, they can happen in the same location. Um, and I'll give you, I'll show you just real quickly um, you know a clinical clinical ways to differentiate them. So this is staph. And here you have um, boils or abscesses um, that are um, exhibiting what we call pointing. So they look like they want to drain from a central um, area. And I'll show you how HS in a moment that doesn't do that. And then there's frequently this kind of colorative scale, which is another kind of helpful clue with staph. Um, now this patient is shaving here, so she's sort of inoculated this around into multiple areas. And you know you could be forgiven for thinking you know maybe that's HS. But you no, know, it's staph. Um, as opposed to this patient who has hydridenitis, and you can see that these um, quote-unquote boils um, are a little bit different. They're sort of draining from the side, um, and they don't have that color of scale. Here again is hydridenitis, and here this patient has an underlying you know, sinus tract as well. Okay, some, some other uh, gram-positive infections. So this is acute paronychia. Um So here you have the pus and the nail fold, and uh, usually this is gonna need to be evacuated in addition to um, treating with an oral antibiotic. This is pretty dramatic. This was a patient who was sent to me for uh, rule out pyoderma gangrenosum. Um, he had this very impressive, weepy, erosive uh, process on the foot. And it turns out this is like a pretty classic thing, actually. If you Google this entity, um, you will see like basically this guy's foot. It's not actually his foot, but like every case looks exactly like this. It's gram negative toe web infection. So essentially, what happens is you have tinea, um, and then it creates a portal of entry for gram negatives, usually Pseudomonas. And in fact, he cultured uh, out Pseudomonas. and, uh, and then it creates this really horrible weepy erosive thing. So it turns out that the key issue is really moisture. Um, so this gentleman's pseudomonas was actually resistant to everything except for gentamicin and uh, meropenem. So am I going to put a pick line in this guy because those are IV medicines? Am I going to put a pick line in this guy to treat this or not? Um, well, all I did was use um, uh, Castellani paint and uh, then dilute acetic acid soaks and told him not to wear shoes, um, just kind of dry it off with a fan. It's fundamentally a moisture issue, um, and so this is him two weeks later like uh, nearly 100% better uh, on that regimen of basically drying it out and the anti-polymicrobial activity of the vinegar and the castellani paint. This is another pseudomonal infection, otitis externa. Um, This can be a significant uh, problem. This often happens, uh, the association we think of is diabetes I showed this picture the other day, Um, this is a patient who had uh, this sort of solid edema in the um, throat area and sort of this uh, um, convexity where there should be a concavity, open mouth breathing, and this was a deep space neck infection, uh, which we talked about as something that is an airway emergency if you see it. Okay, ecthyma gangrenosum. So when we use that term, it's really a clinical term. It basically means this kind of necrotic, violaceous lesion. And classically, it's Pseudomonas, which I believe this one was. Classically, it's disseminated Pseudomonas, but really any gram-negative bacteria or angioinvasive fungal infection or even Staph aureus can create a lesion that looks like this. Um, So here it's Pseudomonas, and she has actually multiple other areas as well. Here is sort of like a thrombophlebitis happening. Um, Here's the same patient, um, disseminated Pseudomonas. Um, this patient also had sort of this gunmetal gray violaceous lesion. Um, again, theres I, I said the other day there's nothing good in that differential, this sort of necrotic tissue. This is the patient who was receiving chemotherapy. She was an outpatient. She came in um, with fever and this. Um, the biopsy um, showed uh, Pseudomonas. Okay, so in the, in the, uh, along the lines of if you're immunosuppressed, anything can happen. Um, this nodule, which otherwise is fairly nondescript on this woman's thigh, ended up growing nocardia. Um, so in our patients who are chronically immunosuppressed, you know, you see things like this. Um, you know, it's worth a biopsy and a tissue culture, um, especially if there are any um, other symptoms like uh, fevers and so on. Um, I showed this image yesterday as well. This is a patient who had this tender kind of purpuric area, um, and then this grew um, Stenotrophomonas, which um, the key thing to know about is that it's highly resistant to all the usual stuff, and we normally uh, would want to treat it with high-dose IV Bactrim. Here's another patient with the same organism, Stenotrophomonas, and again, you have this sort of um, tender, erythematous, subcutaneous um, plaque or nodule. And my experience with this entity is there's often not a lot of inflammation when you biopsy it. It's kind of underwhelming, um, but um, a couple days later, the culture uh, will grow this organism and it's a really nice pickup because like i said um, they're typically not being covered for it okay so this is the scrotum this is fournier gangrene um, another thing to put on your list of stuff you hope you never see um, but this patient was thought to have essentially just an erosion they thought well he has a and is kind of eroded in here but you can pick up on this sort of perbol- um, you know, ominous kind of jagged border here, and this ended up uh, being a, a, po- a polymicrobial infectious process. He needed to go to the operating room with uh, urology. Okay, so let's say you saw a patient like this. Now, there's a, a whole differential for the purple toe, right? So it includes pernio, and it includes you know um, cryoglobulinemia and other things as well. Um, but if you have a patient who's got like you know scattered you know um, lesions like this in distal extremities, you know splinter hemorrhages. Um, you'd certainly want to think about endocarditis. This happened to be um, interococcal endocarditis. This is kind of a wild card. Um, these are really subtle. You see these tiny little pink spots here. Um, there's one that's sort of helpfully inked out here for us. Um, but this is a patient who had salmonella typhi infection. And these are rose spots of disseminated salmonella typhi, so kind of an exotic one, um, but a very characteristic um, a rash that one can get in this particular condition. This is gonocoxemia. So a young, you know, sexually active patient um, has these purpuric um, you know, vesicles uh, originating around um, uh, the extremities and joint areas um, and uh, you know, uh, want to do a good sexual history. This is gonococcemia. And then this is another really dramatic one, a patient who has um, E. coli sepsis and essentially DIC. So this is purpura fulminans, that angulated purpura, and it kind of goes along with vascular collapse and sepsis. All right, so let's move on to fungal infections. Um, so let's start with uh, you know something that we see all the time, which is tinea. Um, this is pretty widespread tinea. Um, here's more. Uh, so the annular uh, border. Um, you know you're going to certainly would want to scrape this Um, here is so here is what you would call invasive tinea so sometimes um, you'll get questions uh, you know from the transplant team or somebody's going to go for a kidney transplant or something and they have tinea and they're asking well is it going to disseminate well no not really but uh, it can be invasive and what we mean by that is the hair follicle so we have these pustules and nodules and so this is a patient who might not clear with with topical therapy alone because it's it's involving the hair follicles and there it is on uh, KOH Um, here's thrush Uh, So these adherent um, white plaques and and papules in the oral mucosa. That was a pretty impressive case. Um, And then candidal intertrigo. So um, uh, here we see uh, the sort of satellite papules and pustules uh, in this patient. So you can also have disseminated candida, and this is a a picture of that. So here this patient has disseminated red papules, and then um, these vesicles that have, or pustules rather, that have this sort of jagged border to them, um, and this ended up growing candida. And so these patients so with a candida obviously that's um, a serious issue. Um, in particular, uh, you want to involve ophthalmology because they can get a candidal endophthalmitis. Um, the bullseye infarct of zygomycosis. Um, here are all the hyphae within the vessel wall. Um, and so um, in patients who are immunosuppressed, certainly if they're febrile or neutropenic, we wanna get a good thorough exam. This is gonna guide management. This is a patient um, with um, these necrotic uh, lesions that developed in the penis. So this is in the fold between her belly and sort of the suprapubic area. And uh, this, we, we, cultured, we uh, did a biopsy in tissue culture. This ended up growing rhizopus. And we said, you know, why are these lesions happening here? She didn't have them anyplace else. Um, and so we considered this to be probably a primary inoculation because of the location, and she actually went for debridement, and that potentially is a curative um, uh, treatment for these patients in what, in what otherwise is a very serious situation with mortality approaching 100% in patients with disseminated lesions um, who are, of course, immunosuppressed sort of by default. Uh, so we use amphotericin, and then there's some a, a more recent antifungal is also used as well as posaconazole so prompt diagnosis of these kinds of ecthyma like lesions right the necrotic violaceous lesion prompt diagnosis really is critical especially in our immunosuppressed patients if we can do a biopsy and uh tissue culture that may guide management so this was an interesting patient. He um, w- had a heart transplant about uh, a month before he presented with this. Um, and on, on close questioning, you know, he uh, was a gardener. That was his hobby. He hadn't done any gardening since before the transplant, um, but this lesion grew up uh, you know, uh, post-transplant when he's uh, being immunosuppressed. And what this ended up growing, here it is again, so after, after a first attempt at debridement, um, it grew back even bigger. And uh, what this grew was alternaria. So this is a fungal uh, organism. And uh, we tried to um, treat this with itraconazole and, um, and standard surgical excision, but it kept recurring, and so we ended up actually using mOs along with the uh, itraconazole. Um, this is a, a young patient, 26-year-old patient, not immunosuppressed, um, who developed this um, uh, heaped up scaling lesion, um, annular lesion on the buttock. Um, and likely this, the inoculation injury here was sitting on like a wood stump or a bench with a splinter. Um, and this ends up being an entity called chromoblastomycosis. And the, the key classic thing is these little copper pennies. So you see, for all this uh, inflammation, this was on my board exam, by the way. So you see that you get the, we, we get like glass slides on our boards. And you get this glass slide with this crazy you know, biopsy. And then you're like searching around and you find like this tiny little um, copper, quote unquote, copper penny of chromoblastomycosis. Um, this is another patient with the same disease. Um, and so again, you have this kind of heaped up, verrucous scaly, annular lesion with kind of scarring in the middle. Um, these little tiny black dots are actually the organism extruding from the um, from the lesion. Um, and you often can diagnose it from that. And then here it's exhibiting sporotrichoid spread, so up the cutaneous lymphatic. So this is an endemic mycosis. Um, e- any of these endemic mycoses, blasto, um, you know, chromoblastomycosis, um, histo, these things can have this sort of verrucous appearance, they can spread up the cutaneous lymphatics, sporotrichosis, of course, as well, and atypical mycobacteria can, can do the same thing. Okay, so this was an interesting story. This was a, a patient of mine who was a um, Penn sophomore, and uh, the part of it that was interesting is he's uh, best he was best friends with um the son of my uh, former research mentor who happens to be the head of infectious diseases at ucla Um, and so she called me up and said can you see this guy um you know my son's friend who's at Penn." so i saw him and and i thought you know this probably common things being common is like a ruptured acne cyst um and uh, he desperately wanted me to get rid of it so we injected it with some kenalog and uh, three days later he was texting me, and uh, I don't know how I got my number, but he was texting me, and he was saying, you're a genius, it's, get, it's getting better. Um, and then a week later, it sort of erupted again. And so I was able to convince him to let me biopsy it, and this ended up being, um, here's something not normal in the skin, this ends up being this spherule with all these little tiny endospores, and this is coccidiomycosis. So those of you who practice in the Southwest, in California, you're certainly familiar with this. We don't have it in Philly, okay? And this was not something that I had on my radar for this patient. Um, It turns out that, uh, of course, he was from LA, so um, that's a risk factor, I suppose, but the history that we got, ultimately, was that he was playing soccer on a dirt field in Arizona uh, over Thanksgiving, and developed uh, sort of a mono-like illness, and then, ultimately, this lesion. So this kind of crusted um, lesion on the cheek. Um, So we, of course, worked him up for systemic involvement, for immunocompromise, and he ended up being treated with fluconazole for about a year, uh, and it resolved. Um, I showed this picture as well. This is uh, pustules and crusts uh, on the shoulder of a heart transplant patient, and this ends up being um, cutaneous crypto. And the key learning point here is just that um, the the most common clinical presentation of disseminated crypto uh, in the skin of a transplant patient is these acneiform lesions or um, acneiform pustules. Okay, so mycobacteria. Um, so this is a tough one. You know, often patients are immunosuppressed for some reason, but it doesn't have to be a lot of immunosuppression. It could be something like they're on a little bit of um, prednisone for COPD, uh, for example, um, or, they're, or they're being treated for some other autoimmune condition, but not necessarily um, greatly immunosuppressed. And this um, sort of slow-growing, indolent, Um, You know, nodule uh, ends up being Mycobacterium cheloni in this patient. And then this woman um, who had had a lung transplant, um, she had multiple violaceous nodules, and this grew Mycobacterium abscessus. Part of the problem is that it of course takes, um, except for the rapid growing organisms, um, it it can take many weeks for this to grow out. And so you have a patient where you're almost certain that there's an infection there, but you're kind of missing the, the key data. So it might be the second or third or fourth biopsy that we actually get an answer, and I certainly encourage you to stay on the trail if you're worried. Um, This is a case in point. This was a woman who has a diagnosis of dermatomyositis. Not terribly immunosuppressed. Um, Dermatomyositis is pretty well controlled actually. Um, But then she um, came up with these symptoms of um, sort of um, uh, low grade fevers, sweats, um, she had an extensive workup by infectious disease. Um, they were sending off like uh, Babesia titers or, or doing smears for Babesia and all kinds of uh, workup uh, for her. Um, rheumatology, um, uh, you know, every specialist uh, you know that you could imagine for any localizing symptoms. And they couldn't come up with what was going on. So she had these skin nodules, which you can see really are not impressive at all. Um, Here's the actual place that I biopsied. Uh, Trust me, there's like a little bit of nodularity there. Um, And uh, they were actually symptomatic. They were kind of tender. So um, this is actually my third attempt to to get it, Um, but I biopsied here, and I biopsied at the same time another lesion on her calf, and both of those biopsies ended up growing Mycobacterium avium intracellulari. So this is really rarely in the skin, but what a key finding, right? This patient's had like daily fevers for months with no answer. Um, People are wondering, does she have a lymphoma or something like that, Um, and finally we were able to peg down a diagnosis. Okay, viral infection. So this is a 50-year-old heart transplant patient um, who you're asked to evaluate for this crusty plaque on the nose. So what is this? Well, we're used to looking at herpes that looks like this, right? So here's primary uh, HSV infection, um, you know, secondary recurring HSV, you know, more HSV. Um, Here's the Zank smear showing the multinucleate keratinocytes, the margination of nuclear chromatin, the molding of keratinocytes to each other. So we're used to thinking about HSV that looks like that, but what about HSV that looks like um, that, got that plaque on the nose? Why is that HSV? Um, well, we joke on the consult service that HSV is always in the differential, especially in any immunosuppressed patient. And the way I kind of think about it, please forgive like the um, grade school level artwork here, um, but the way I think about this is, you know, what is the core lesion of HSV? It's a one or two millimeter vesicle, and just think about every permutation of that. So we have vesicle, it can be a pustule, it can be hemorrhagic. If it breaks, it can be an erosion. It can be crusted erosion, it can be impetiginized, And then if those vesicles run together, you get this scalloped border. You see that? Um, and then every permutation of that. So crusted, scalloped border, impetiginized, and so on. So that's why we can, and often they're on a mucosal surface, or adjacent to a mucosal surface. So that's why we look at this and we say, okay, HSV. Or we look at this and we say, HSV. Uh, there's that scalloped border. Or we look at this and we say HSV. Um, and you know, here's the scalloped border uh, with this patient as well. It's all in but you can make out that, that characteristic border. There's her hand. Um, so that's why this is HSV, okay? So it's heavily crusted. We're gonna wanna unroof that. We can do a, a, a ZANC or a DFA or a PCR, whatever you have available to you. But you can start to make out that, um, that scalloped border, and if you get rid of the crust, you'll see it even better, and it is adjacent to the mucosal surface there. Here's the biopsy from that patient showing characteristic cha- viral changes. Um, this is another presentation of HSV um, to be aware of in immunosuppressed patients. So painful linear ulcer on the tongue, in my mind, is HSV until proven otherwise. You definitely want uh, to, uh, to test it for HSV. Uh, here's another example. We were, I think we were called for some other reason with this patient, and we noticed this. This was HSV. Um, this was a patient referred to me for uh, what was being called graft-versus-host disease of the tongue. I was like, mm, nope. Um, Actually, the question was, is there such a thing as intraoral PUVA? And I was like, I really have to look that up? But luckily, um, it's HSV and not GBHD, so we can treat it. Um, Or this patient. This is something called geometric herpetic glossitis. This was first described in in patients with AIDS um, back in the 1990s. But you can see how sort of characteristic this looks with these deep ulcers that's sort of branching off on the dorsal tongue. This patient doesn't have AIDS, but he's immunosuppressed for another reason. Um, and, And again, when you see something like this, think HSV. Um, This is the intergluteal cleft, um, and uh, sort of this knife cut type sign, um, and then um, other lesions sort of adjacent to that. This is also HSV. Um, And then we can even see HSV, quote unquote, cellulitis. Um, So the key thing here is there is actually like a core lesion across here, but then there's this like spreading erythema away from it. And so it's a cellulitic-like presentation, uh, but fundamentally it's HSV. In our, um, in our young kids with, uh, with uh, atopic dermatitis, as well as older patients who have um, a dermatosis that disrupts skin barrier function, um, you can develop um, Kaposi varicilliform eruption, aka eczema herpeticum. Um, and here you can see all the little tiny vesicles and impetigo. And these patients get treated with IV acyclovir as well as uh, IV um, anti-staph antibiotics um, because this can lead to sepsis. Um, we, in our immunosuppressed patients, can get something called Verrucus HSV. It almost looks like a big squamous cell carcinoma, um, often in the genital area. Um, we actually treated this with uh, intralesional Sidofavir. Um So you may come across Sidofavir for, for use in treating warts. Um, it's also useful for treating acyclovir-resistant herpes. Um, here in a patient like this who's immunosuppressed and has a chronic infection, um, they may be on acyclovir or Valtrex and not responding to therapy. They have resistant virus. Um, sidofivir or foscarnid are your only options. They're very toxic when taken systemically. So this is a patient that we use interlesional Sidofavir, um, which is just the IV formulation diluted 1 to 4 with saline. Or even topical sidofivir. This is another patient with resistant HSV, and we use topical Sidofavir, um to treat that. Okay, so how about zoster? So when you see a patient who looks like this, it's pretty obvious what that is, right? Dermatomal zoster. Um, but how about um, other scenarios? How about scenarios that, where you need to worry about something else or something systemic? Um, So this patient had um, aphthalmic zoster, right? So V1 distribution, vesicles on the tip of the nose, that's called Hutchinson's sign. Three-quarters of the time they're going to have actual ocular involvement with HSV. So any patient where we have zoster in this distribution, we'd like the ophthalmology to evaluate them. But particularly if there's vesicles in this area, um, there uh, certainly um, is a high risk that they have um, HSV involvement in the eye as well. This is Ramsey Hunt syndrome. So if you have HSV uh, sorry VZV that's uh, involving the uh, territory of the ear, and it goes into the ear canal. Um, then you want to think about this entity. So essentially what's happening, this is often, the the innervation of this area is actually pretty complicated and it sort of varies by like what resource you look at, Um, but essentially the symptoms of Ramsey-Hunt that develop have to do with compression of cranial nerve um, seven and eight. So the patients get um, vestibular uh, disturbance, so they have vertigo, they have tinnitus, they have hearing loss, um, they can have a facial droop, um, so patients with, uh, patients with vesicles in this territory you want to think about. You also can have vesicles on the tongue in these patients because the facial nerve also provides some taste sensation for the tongue. Um, so how do we treat a patient like this? Well, we're going to give them um, antiviral therapy, but we also use prednisone to calm that swelling. Um, so this is a patient with disseminated and Believe it or not, this patient, um, he was thrombocytopenic, and um, the people caring for him were sort of passing this off as Uh, Um, But these are quite impressive. These vesicles he's bled into and so they're sort of black looking. Um, And he has, of course, this dermatomal distribution kind of running down his arm. Um, But then he has uh, scattered lesions kind of more or less all over. So what do we call, how do we make the determination that it's disseminated uh, varicella zoster? Um, Well, if there are uh, two or more non-contiguous dermatomes affected, or if there are 20 or more lesions outside the affected dermatome, then then that meets criteria for disseminated zoster on the skin, we also want to ask about especially in an immunosuppressed patient ask about abdominal pain ask about um, cough dyspnea um, try to evaluate whether um, there's any evidence of confusion or altered mental status so this patient had disseminated zoster and uh, of course it's contagious Um, he needs to be treated with iv acyclovir so i think this is one that's been flying under the radar quite honestly i think because Patients get vaccinated, which is a very good thing. Um, we don't see, in regular practice, like regular old chicken pox very often. And so we've had a number of cases who even are being managed like on like an infectious disease service um, where we get consulted and we come in and tell them it's VZV. And I think if it doesn't have a dermatome, people kind of aren't thinking about it. If you look at this patient, you know from the doorway, you'd say there's, what's, you know, there's really not much going on here. But if you get up close, you see that uh, classic dewdrop on a rose petal. Um, so I can't tell you how many times I've um, had a resident present to me and, and, and basically say, well, it's just kind of a nonspecific rash, and then I get up close, and I'm looking around, and I find two or three stray vesicles, and it turns out to be disseminated varicella. Um, so just be on the lookout for kind of regular old um, chickenpox-like presentation. And there's the Zank smear for that patient. Okay, so this is something that you've all seen, but you're not kind of used to seeing it like this. Um, just break down to kind of the core morphology here. So these tiny little um, dome-shaped flesh-colored papules, Um, this is actually molluscum. So this patient um, is uh, immunosuppressed um, and he has sort of widespread molluscum and uh, there's what that looks like um, on the smear. So we're more used to seeing molluscum in kids or in adults where it happens to be um, often a sexually transmitted infection. So here's molluscum on the penis and on the scrotum, these little flesh-colored papules. or white dome-shaped papules, and there's the KOH, again, these sort of classic Henderson-Patterson bodies. Um, So if you're in doubt, I mean, you don't have, if you clinically are comfortable with the diagnosis, great. I think I scraped this because it was like so tiny I wasn't totally sure, Um, but this is pathognomonic of the diagnosis. Um, So this uh, is a very um, um, impressive hand, foot, mouth, um, Coxsackie virus infection. Um, Here's another uh, younger patient with um, hand, foot, mouth. So you have these um, characteristic uh, sort of gray vesicles uh, around the mouth on the extensor surfaces on the hands and feet uh, and and on the butt. Um, And one key thing to know about is this uh, Uh, more recent strain, Coxsackie A6, which is more severe. These patients often need to be hospitalized for supportive care. They can't eat. Um, They're pretty miserable. Okay, so here's something that we kind of leave out of our morbilliform rash differential, right? I mean, when's the last time when you talk about your differential from our biliform rash, did you think about checking HIV? Well, we should probably, if, we should probably do it in all of these patients, right? Um, you know, the CDC recommends checking for HIV um, in nearly all patients. Um, and so if you have a patient who's coming in with kind of mono-like symptoms, if they've got a rash, um, you know, add that to your, to your kind of thought, uh, to your thinking as something that would be nice not to miss. Parvovirus, so we all know about the slap cheek um, look in, in kids. Um, there's also this lacy rash that develops later. All right, how about um, spirochetes? So this is a patient um, with syphilis, and I'm gonna leave this up for just a second because I wanna make a point. so this patient was interesting. He actually had a negative RPR um, because it was checked too early, and then on the repeat, it was positive. And the reason I want to mention this is that syphilis is on the rise, um, especially if you live in an um, in, in urban area. Um, there are about 50 counties in the US that account for um, the vast majority of the new cases of syphilis. And we're seeing more and more of it. I, I volunteer in an STD clinic uh, once a month and this is from that clinic. So here's a syphilitic chancre. Here's secondary syphilis. Uh, So these uh, kind of hyperpigmented, disseminated uh, brown, uh, kind of penny-like lesions. Here's another case of secondary syphilis. Um, So if you see a patient, you're thinking, oh, could this be peteriasis rosea? You know, uh, sort of uh, kind of scattered you know these are this is not super impressive these little red brown small lesions but you definitely want to remember uh to have syphilis in your differential and you'd be surprised you know don't make any assumptions about anybody um you know uh syphilis is on the rise in in uh you know uh retirement communities and other places as well so just so just add it to your to your list it's an easy test it's bad not to mi- it's bad to miss it um and uh i i explain to patients, look, you know, this is something that we're gonna check. I, I don't expect it to be positive, but we just wanna be complete. Um, so again, here's uh, secondary syphilis. And then this is lata. So in the genital area, these kind of wet, weepy, sort of wart-like lesions of secondary syphilis. All right, so this was a patient who presented with multiple annular uh, erythematous uh, patches. And what do you think? So this is Lyme disease. There's some pin marking, so that tells you it's not cellulitis. Um, but it's Lyme disease. Um, and so what, how, what are, how do we kind of break out Lyme? So does this patient, did she get bit? This is like, uh, she has like 20 spots. So did she have like 20 different tick bites or, or, or what? Okay, so for stage one, early Lyme, you know, we see, think of erythema chronicum migrans, right? This characteristic rash that typically appears after about seven days, accompanied by flu-like symptoms. Um, You know, don't, you can ask about, you know, were you hiking, do you remember a tick, Um, but most people actually don't have any specific recollection um, of of a tick bite. Um, Don't um, be fooled, you know, often we're expecting this kind of perfect clearing in the middle, um, but uh, it turns out Lyme Lyme only clears in the middle about a quarter of the time, um, and so often it kind of looks more like this, but just expanding erythematous plaque. All right, stage two, early disseminated. So this usually occurs uh, within a few weeks after the bite, Um, and multiple lesions just is a a sign of the um, organism disseminating, Okay, Um, so that happens in a good chunk of patients. Here they can have fever, malaise, arthritis, they can get a a Bell's palsy, they can get a heart block. Um, So This was a patient we were called to evaluate um, who had chin numbness. That was her presenting complaint, and it turns out that if you're a neurologist, chin numbness is some sort of red flag for like CNS lymphoma. I didn't know that. I had to I, I learned about that after I met this patient. So they actually had admitted her to do a large volume lumbar puncture uh, to send for cytology. So that was what she was being worked up for. And then incidentally, they were like, oh, she has this rash, come take a look. So she has multiple of these annular lesions uh, on her on her trunk and extremities. And of course, this is consistent with early disseminated Lyme. And if you look up again chin numbness, you find that yeah, CNS lymphoma can cause that particular neurologic symptom, but so can a whole bunch of other things, including Lyme disease, VZV, uh, anything basically that can that can cause uh, these neuro, you know, neurologic uh, symptoms. Um, so that ended up being Lyme disease. Uh, so late uh, or chronic Lyme, um, this is months to years later, um, they can have uh, large uh, joint arthritis, encephalopathy, um, neuropathy. Um, and most of these patients don't actually have a history of rash or else they would have been treated. Um, but they might remember other symptoms. Okay, so how do we make the diagnosis? So if you're a dermatologist, the way you're diagnosing Lyme is you see the rash that is characteristic of Lyme. Do not mess around with antibody titers. Um, they can demonstrate exposure, but not active infection. And you can frequently have false positives and false negatives. Um, it's not a great test. Um, and so there's no real role for ordering it, um, like I said, if you're a dermatologist. Uh, if you, the CDC will say if you have uh, erythema chronicum migrans, just treat them for Lyme. So how do we treat it? Well, DOXY 100 BID for 14 to 21 days. I'm getting you ready for the summer, you see here with the Lyme conversation. Um, If it's early disseminated, um, same treatment. If they have um, neurologic or cardiac symptoms, then ceftriaxone. And then if it's a late, uh, late Lyme, then they get a longer course of doxy or, again, ceftriaxone if there's neurological stuff. So this was an interesting patient. She, uh, this is a patient I met uh, when I was uh, working with some infectious disease doctors. And uh, th- she was a clinic patient of theirs. And uh, uh, one of the providers said, oh, hey, come look at this great example of Lyme disease. So I think I was the last one to file into the room. And I just was sort of chit-chatting with her. And I said, "You know, hey, did you see the tick? And she said, as as a matter of fact, I have the tick right here in this little baggie. And so she pulled out the tick, and this is what the tick looked like. And this is um, the uh, Lone Star tick, Ambiloma americanum. And it turns out that this tick actually is fundamentally unable to spread Lyme disease. It has anti-borrelial saliva. Um, I learned a lot about this tick in the process of this. So this is not Lyme disease. It's something called Southern Tick-Associated Rash Illness, or STARI. Um, and uh, the important thing about this, this was the first report of STARI in Pennsylvania, um, but this tick has been sort of expanding its range, as I, as I expect we'll see for a lot of um, uh, zoonotic or, um, diseases that we see, these, or, these vectors are spreading and expanding their range. And you know it looks more like Lyme than Lyme looks like Lyme. So I said before that Lyme clears in the middle about a quarter of the time. STARI, Southern Tick-Associated Rash Illness, clears in the middle about three-quarters of the time. So it really looks like Lyme. It's treated with doxy. They don't get any of the secondary complications, neurologic and other stuff like that, so that's good. Um, but you know, basically, if you see it, you're still gonna just treat it with doxycycline uh, as though it were Lyme. Um, this is a sort of uh, exotic kind of returning traveler thing. This was uh, a patient who um, had fever and these disseminated lesions. This is Mediterranean spotted fever. Um, he, was, uh, he had been in North Africa, and uh, this is uh, what's called the tache noir. So this is actually uh, the tick bite um, and then um, the dissemination of the organism. And this is in the spotted fever group. Um, here is the sort of classic spotted fever. Rocky Mountain spotted fever. Um, Anybody uh, live in North Carolina? So I did med school in North Carolina and uh, the teaching was, you know, if somebody comes into the ER in the summer with a headache just give them doxy, like there's no downside. Um, Why why do you get that, uh, you know, advice? Well, it's because um, this is a pretty serious disease. So fever, headache, chills, weakness, um, and then you develop the rash And importantly, the rash is only there 50% of of the time within three days, and 10 to 20% don't get a rash at all. So if you're waiting for the rash to make the diagnosis, sometimes it's too late, um, because these patients can progress to um, CNS, renal um, uh, involvement, as well as um, shock. So treated just with doxy, 100 BID for seven days. Um, the fatality rate rises um, precipitously if antibiotics not initiated part of the fifth day. So that's why in states where you have a lot of RMSF, um, the advice is just give them doxy. All right, infestations. Okay, so this is a patient I met. Um, I think he was billed as, uh, you know, come and uh, help us out with this seborrheic dermatitis. All right, so I took like one step into the room and then took another step out. Um, this is uh, <laughs> crusted scabies. Um, so here this kind of, I really think of this as like pathognomonic. This nothing else looks like this. This kind of sand-like scale. And it almost looks like you're at the beach and you have your foot in the wet sand, and it kind of cracks over your foot. Um, that's kind of what this looks like. And um, you know scabies. If, it, if you've ever done a scabies prep, you know the best way to do that is to really kind of hunt around for. Um, for lesions that look suspicious, and you know, you're know you scraping multiple different sites, maybe you're making two or three slides, anything you can do to increase your yield. For a case like this, you just hold the slide over the patient like this, and you get four um, scabies mites on the slide. And they were actually swimming around, but I think the video stopped working long ago. I'm sorry, I can't show you that. Um, here's, uh, here's the mite, um, and here's the scabala, which is um, a nice way of saying their poop. Okay, so here's another patient with crusted scabies, and actually this, this case was full of learning points too. So he was kind of like a weekend curbside, like, oh hey, we have this patient um, with AIDS um, who has bad psoriasis, can, can you come take a look? And it turns out that he was a patient with psoriasis who had been managed by an attending dermatologist in our department, and when his psoriasis got worse, they decided to treat him more aggressively. He actually was on cyclosporin and then adalimumab. Um, So when we're starting patients on these kinds of medicines, we probably should check for HIV. We also should think if there's a patient who had like regular psoriasis and now it's like out of control, we should check for HIV. Those are two kind of missed opportunities. So at any rate, he was on these medicines. He presented to an outside hospital with cytopenias and was ultimately diagnosed with HIV with a CD4 count of about 17. Um, So now he's being treated um, for various complications of that and we're asked to come and take a look. And that sand-like scale that I mentioned with that cracked appearance, It doesn't get more uh, pathognomonic than that for crusted scabies, and there's the mite. So we actually, we put this case in, there's like a JAMA clinical challenge section just to make the point that basically this is something that you should be able to diagnose um, if you are um, a provider, um, even a non-dermatologist, this is pretty pathognomonic. And and the couple of cases that I showed you of crusted scabies, both of these patients were in the hospital for like 10 days before anybody um, made this diagnosis, and it's an infection control nightmare. Um, normally, for a patient with scabies, they have like two dozen mites, and they're crazy itchy. These patients have like, you know, two million mites, and so it's just, it's just an infection control nightmare. So this is a patient with kind of more garden variety scabies, so you have this little kind of excoriated papula in the web space. Um, and here's what it looks like on dermoscopy. This is known as the delta wing sign, so this little triangle, uh, triangular type uh, thing. And this actually can help you if you're good with the dermatoscope and you're looking in the sort of characteristic areas. You might see a burrow, you might see the delta wing, and that also increases your yield if you then scrape that area. All right, so this lady, um, you can imagine why she uh, came into the ER. She's pretty swollen and looks like angioedema. But when you look up close, you can see that there's actually individual papules, um, which kind of are grouped and linear, which is a telltale sign of arthropod bite. Um, So this is um, bed bug bites. There it is, uh, Cimex lexularis, the bed bug. Um, This is another patient uh, who had been traveling in Peru, and uh, it, he came back. Uh, was we knew that we were seeing this patient uh, who, had, who had this rash after going to Peru, and we were brainstorming the residents and I about you know what it could be. Was it going to be Chagas disease or you know uh, or some other kind of you know interesting thing? Um, and he had this terrific wheel and flare reaction. Remember, I showed you the Wells case, uh, Wells syndrome case uh, earlier, and that's basically what this is. And this guy was good. He he had taken pictures of himself with his iPad like each day, and this started at as individual uh, erythematous papules in a row, and then they just sort of like joined up in this crazy wheel as he probably was scratching. Um, this looks a little bit more like what you might think of for, for bed bug bites. Um, no word whether they're Peruvian bed bugs or not, but, um, but uh, th- that's what the diagnosis was. Um, and here's what we would see, breakfast, lunch, dinner, and dessert. All right. So the last little section here: um, global health and returning traveler. Um, So uh, you know, people travel all over. Um, We also have, again, you know, expanding range of various um, disease-carrying vectors, and so um, even some things that seem exotic um, are probably soon to be um, showing up in our local clinics and ERs. Um, so this is a patient who returned from Costa Rica. The kind of cla- this couldn't be more classic. He was uh, doing uh, like some sort of yoga and surfing trip in like, the rainforest of Costa Rica. And uh, here are these lesions uh, that kind of have this, um, it's sort of described as like pizza-like. So there's sort of a raised border and kind of ulcerated in the middle. Here's the nasal mucosa. And this actually is leishmania. So again, sort of pizza-like. You can kind of go along with what I'm saying there. Um, and here's the organism, so it's this intracellular um, parasite, sort of a uh, swarm of amastigotes here, the swarm of bees. And so this is a, a, char- a sort of a characteristic finding histologically. This was a young woman who uh, was a Penn medical student. She had um, done a summer in Kenya, and now she's back uh, seeing her uh, regular doc, and so I was called to, to come take a look. And so she has these like furuncles, this is sort of lower back buttock area, these furuncles. Um, But they're more than fur uncles. They are uh, actually bot fly infestation. So there's the fly larva. So how does this happen? Are Are they running, you know, are you running around with uh, with no pants on, and you get bit. No, what happens is you do your laundry, and um, you know it's hung out, and the fly comes and la- lays its eggs there, and then um, it it uh, it can get into the skin. And so this is uh, kind of a rite of passage for people who've done um, uh, work abroad in certain places. Um, kind of a kind of, I guess, a cool badge of honor if you can get over the uh, initial um, disgust. This was an interesting one as well. Um, So this was a patient that um, I actually wasn't consulted for but happened to be kind of like in the vicinity of a conversation being had. And this was a patient who had been traveling in Southeast Asia. Um, He had had sort of like a flu-like illness. Um, He had liver function abnormalities. Um, and uh, he had this rash and so the team was saying oh hey you know why don't you just come take a look and I was preparing myself to be absolutely of zero help just to say it's just a nonspecific rash Um, but when I got in there I thought to myself you know it actually is kind of a funny rash there are these weird islands of sparing do you see those islands of sparing there's not that many things in dermatology that we think of with islands of sparing certainly PRP being one Um, but if it's an acute sort of uh, you know, rash like this, and there's uh, other sort of viral-type symptoms. Um, it turns out that this is actually very characteristic of dengue. Um, so I said, you know, I think it could be dengue. And uh, then I actually, I, I was leaving the hospital for the day, I actually left the building and then I thought, you know what, I'm gonna go back and take a picture because if it ends up being dengue, I'm gonna be kicking myself if I don't have that picture. Um, so dengue is something that, um, you know, uh, is, is actually in the Caribbean, okay? It's not that far away. Um, and uh, this is something that um, can be very serious and life-threatening. We think about dengue hemorrhagic fever and you get like purpura and, and bleeding in the skin but that's a very small minority of patients. This is actually a very characteristic rash um, that you can see in, many mo- in, in a greater percentage of patients. Okay, Zika. So what do we see with Zika? I haven't personally seen Zika, but I'm pr- there may be uh, some in the room who have. Um, that is really a pretty nonspecific rash, sort of a morbilliform rash, um, but conjunctivitis is a pretty typical uh, finding as well. All right, so I do a few um, Teledermatology cases for Doctors Without Borders, and this is one of those. This is a a young guy from South Sudan, Um, and I promise you this is relevant. Um, So you have this terrifically edematous, violaceous, necrotic plaque on the cheek. You see all that swelling. And this is actually cutaneous anthrax. Um, So it turns out in certain parts of the world, like South Sudan, this is an endemic problem. Um, Cattle have it, and it's spread spread to people. It's so common actually that they don't even present for management unless it's something like this where it's on the face and there's all the swelling. Um, This would just be treated with penicillin. Um, But weaponized anthrax, which hopefully we never see, um, uh, would look like this and if it's on the skin and we would treat it with ciprofloxacin. This is another sort of telederm case from Africa. This is a classic thing um, known as Boruli ulcer, Mycobacterium ulcerans, and it pr- um, produces this toxin that um, creates this very impressive ulcer that's almost like surgical looking. And there's the mycobacteria. And then this is, some, this is another teled- teledermatology case, this huge sort of like tumor-like mass. Um, and this actually ends up being, as you see these purple clouds, and the starry stain, this is actually bacillary angiomatosis, Spartanella. This is what bacillary angiomatosis would normally look like, um, say, in a patient with HIV. Um, but uh, it can, this patient had HIV, advanced HIV, but it can be very uh, large and tumor-like as well. Okay, so let's talk briefly, I'm I'm going to summarize here, let's talk briefly about our differential for for different types of presentations. So for the violaceous necrotic plaque, we want to think about angi-invasive fungal infections, so aspergillus, fusarium, zygomycetes, um, in the right patient, immunosuppressed patient, as well as gram-negative bacteria like pseudomonas, E. coli, um, and staph aureus. And to round out the differential, violaceous lesion, vasculopathy, coagulopathy, vasculitis, things like calcifilaxus are also in that differential. So pearl number one, the presence of a violaceous necrotic lesion, especially in an immunosuppressed patient, suggests vascular destruction, and there's nothing good in that differential. Um, So rapid diagnosis via biopsy and tissue culture is key to guide um, decision making. All right, so how about the differential diagnosis for a nodule? So if there's, uh, especially, a verrucous nodule, um, you want to think about deep fungal infection, atypical mycobacteria, um, certain bacteria like nocardia, um, verrucous HSV, if you see that kind of wet, friable, uh, tumor-like nodule in the genital area of a patient with HIV, think Verrucus HSV, um, but also things like leukemia cutis, SWEET syndrome. So when you see a Verrucus indolent nodule in an immunosuppressed patient, think deep fungal infection or atypical mycobacteria, particularly when there's sporotrichoid spread. And remember not that not everything that looks like infection is, so we talked yesterday about SWEET syndrome, um, pyoderma gangrenosum entities that can produce fever um, and other signs of infection, um, but they're inflammatory conditions, uh, not infections. And uh, we want to appropriately rule out and cover for infection, but recognize the potential for those inflammatory causes. All right, so how about the differential for a vesicle or a pustule? Certainly HSV and VZV. Remember all the atypical presentations of HSV that we talked about. Candida, um, other fungal uh, organisms like crypto, um, different types of folliculitis, bacteria, pterosporum, and then other viruses like hand, foot, mouth disease. So, our pearls recognize erosions or crust with a scalloped border may represent chronic HSV infection as those round lesions coalesce with each other and create that scalloped border. Um, don't miss disseminated VZV. Look for subtle vesicles and don't depend on seeing a dermatome for diagnosis. Just be aware um, that these that patients can present this way as well. And pearl number three the most common clinical appearance of crypto in a transplant patient is acneiform or pustular. All right, so how about our cellulitis differential? So, this is almost always going to be strep. Um, But if there's purulent cellulitis, or an abscess connected to it, then think of staph, in particular MRSA. Um, In our immunosuppressed populations, we also can see E. coli, Klebsiella, other gram-negative cellulitis. It's often deep red, has uh, hemorrhagic bullae that you can culture and grow the organism. And then rarely we can see uh, cryptocellulitis, herpes cellulitis, other things in in very immunosuppressed patients. At least 30% of cellulitis isn't cellulitis. Um, so we want to differentiate true cellulitis from pseudocellulitis, like stasis dermatitis, and treat those appropriately. That's a place where we can really make a big difference. Um, strep is by far the most common cause, um, but, uh, and you should tailor antibiotics accordingly. Um, but you should know when to suspect other organisms, like the case of purulent cellulitis or immunosuppressed hosts. Address underlying risk factors and implement prophylaxis. Remember the 250 BID of penicillin um, as an option for prophylaxis in patients who um, are having recurrent cellulitis. And then, lastly, our differential for an exanthem or morbilliform rash. This is this could be infinite, um, but think about uh, those ar- arboviral infections like dengue, chikungunya, and Zika virus. Um, other viral things like acute HIV. Don't forget that for your morbilliform uh, rash differential. Parvo, EBV, CMV, measles. It's mor- the word morbilliform means measles-like. Drug reactions and then autoimmune diseases as well. So our pearls. Um, most commonly, this is uh, morbilliform rash is secondary to a drug or a virus. Um, It can be nearly impossible to differentiate uh, the causes of the rash clinically, but there are some that are characteristic, like the islands of sparing and dengue, for example, or the lacy rash that one can get with parvovirus. Um, And as with other presentations of rash and fever, morbilliform eruption plus fever doesn't necessarily mean infection. Uh, Don't forget about DRESS syndrome and systemic hypersensitivity reaction. All right, thank you very much. The speaker. How useful will this session be in your practice? As a result of this program, do you intend to change your patient care? OK, so I think we're basically out of time, but uh, should, I, should I answer a couple questions maybe? OK. Um, you get bonus so- time for questions. Always have time for questions, okay, good. All right, so what are my recommendations for lipodermatosclerosis? Um, i have had success with compression and topical steroids, have you ever had a patient lose weight and obtain benefit? Um, so I think this is a challenging condition. It's an end-stage complication of venous stasis, right? So there's the fibrosis and, and edema, and it's really hard. Don't forget compression. Um, you know, just because uh, the, the tissue is very hard, like, like the podium here, if you press and hold, you will still get pitting. Um, and there's still edema there, it's still worth compression. You know, topical steroids, if there's acute inflammation, moisture, you know, moisturization for the scale and other things. Um, I do kind of extrapolate from other bodies of literature, so for example, using colchicine, um, like we would think for um, erythema nodosum and other paniculitis, um, or uh in its treatment for venous stasis ulcer or, li- or uh, sclerosis, just kind of improving blood flow. Um, so those are some things that I, um, I tend to use. Um, of the infectious skin problems that you see in the hospital, what percentage would you estimate are related to injection drug use? Um, you know, I don't know. I mean, I think it probably depends where you practice. Uh, we definitely see you know s- signs of skin popping with you know sometimes horrible sort of um, separative um, you know multi um, microbial um, infections. Um, so that that definitely happens. Um, and uh, you know. A, other, exo- you know, frequently not, uh, or not frequently other exotic things, just kind of mostly that um, particular complication. Um, Do you ever treat bacterial skin infections with topical antibiotic and topical steroid as well to calm inflammation, or an antibiotic first and steroid topically? Um, this is a good question, I think, um, especially for like intertrigo. So I think when you see intertrigo, you know, probably most of the medicine immediately jumps to Canada, right? Um, and then they just throw like nice powder in there. Um, I hate Nystatin powder. If, if you're trying to like dry something up and it's like wet and gross in there and then you throw powder at it, it's just gonna become like a paste and then the patient has to like scrape the paste off. So I don't really understand it. Um, if there's inner trigo, it's first and foremost a issue, an issue of inflammation. Uh, And moisture, and so I will usually use a a low potency topical steroid um, as my primary thing. And then, you know, if there's uh, staff, if there's uh, candida or other things, I will, um, you know, uh, treat those as well. Mupiracin is a nice option that's anti. gram-positives, but also in vitro, it has anti candidal properties as well, and because it's Vaseline consistency, it can provide some of that barrier function. Desitin is a nice option as well. Um, But you're right, you know there is sometimes inflammation that we have to go after as well, although typically I'm not using steroids for true bacterial infections. Um, For salmonella typhi, do you do tissue culture or bacterial culture? So usually these patients are gonna be growing it in, that patient with the rose spots, she um, had positive blood cultures. You also can culture it from the skin as well. Um, For molluscum, what do you think of oral antivirals such as Valtrex for molluscum? So I'm not aware of, um, I'm not a molluscum expert, but I'm not aware of that being helpful, but uh, there is an oral agent that we sometimes will reach for, which is um, cimetidine, so um, the H2 blocker, um, and sometimes that can be helpful. Uh, Syphilis, what's the protocol for syphilis blood work? So, um, you know, we'll start with uh, RPR. Really, the lab is gonna do this stuff for you. They're gonna then uh, run usually a VDRL, like sort of a, a more specific uh, test um, if the initial RPR is positive. Um, and usually, you know, the, the, uh, public health, um, uh, local public health organizations um, in the city or whatever, um, keep records of RPRs. It's reportable, obviously. So um, if you have, um, you know, a, a positive result that comes back, you can then look and see did this patient have a positive result before? What was the titer? Is it consistent with treatment, old infection? What's the story? Um, have you had any experience with Starry, Lone Star Tick, causing red meat allergy? Um, you know, I'm aware of um, some of the stuff related to tick and, and meat allergy. I, I can't speak with any confidence about it. I'm not familiar with it being related to Starry, um, but um, you know, I, I am, I'm aware of it just kind of as probably as vaguely as the, as the rest of you are. But if anybody knows, you know, happy to, happy to hear. Okay. Thanks very much. This has been a presentation of Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs.